see you. Those that are here, those in Brown Chapel, those that are watching online, we are excited for another Lord's Day after a great Easter that we had. Um, I think the biggest crowd on site, and along with uh, uh, several hundred that were online, but uh, biggest crowd we've had since before the pandemics, I, I believe. So we're thankful that uh, things are heading in a good direction. We've done it again. We, we, we did it again. And that is we have a message that's not the one we announced. Uh, it happens from time to time. I, uh, we've had a lot of pots on the stove. We've been talking about uh, fullness, and in particular, with fullness, we've been talking about those key words of the Christian faith. I thought we would be back there today. Then, of course, we had Holy Week, Palm Sunday, and Easter. Um, I felt before that that the Lord had given me a couple of messages about surviving spiritual assaults. <clears throat> And I don't know when we've had more feedback about messages along the lines of pastor that helped me. I needed that. You brought some clarity. And um, as I have prayed and, and tried to hear the Lord, I, I felt like we needed to do one more message on surviving spiritual assaults. Um, I, I hope, well, I shouldn't say I hope, I mean, the Lord's will be done. I don't plan on spiritual assaults number four or 3B, you know, or anything like that. But we've, we spent those two messages talking about the climate that I felt that we were in and what we were experiencing. It's been a difficult place that many of us have said it's kind of like a place we've never been before. The difficulty and the trouble that we've been experiencing. We talked about how uh, the climate, we talked about what we believe were some causes. We talked about the nature of spiritual combat. And um, I, I felt like we covered it well, but I, I felt like we need to give a little bit of emphasis today to the idea of resisting, not just understanding the attack, but pushing back, resisting. And the, the name of the message is, um, it might be a little intimidating. It's called Doorways for Demons. And uh, we've talked about this before through the years in one format or another. Um, so this is not a lot of new material, but um, to resist the devil. You know, we, we talked last week or week before last about how we need to resist the enemy, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And uh, we draw near to God. Now, when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. When we resist the enemy, he flees from us. That's what we want. So resist also means, um, it, it means sometimes the shutting of doors. Paul said several times, and we'll look at some of them today, we're not ignorant of his devices. We know the way that the enemy works. Our problem is we just need to, whenever we come under attack, we need to stop long enough to remember what God has said and remember what God has done. A lot of times we're in situations where we say, I just don't understand. Well, at least with me, it's usually because if I don't understand, it's because I've stopped remembering. I've stopped what I've been remembering, recalling what I've been taught. <clears throat> and Paul said, if we do that, we give him an advantage over us. 
we give him um, um, a foothold, another version says. So I want to talk to you today about doorways for demons as, as a general theme, but there are basically um, maybe like five things that this message will contain. Uh, and, and we'll get through them just as quickly as we can, spend a little bit of time on doorways uh, for demons. But let's, let's keep our custom and look at the screen and let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Father, in addition to this beautiful prayer that is prayed around the world today, we ask for the anointing of the Holy Spirit as I teach, but Lord, let us also experience the anointing as we listen. We ask you to expose the lies of the enemy that he would whisper into our ears and bring back to our mind. And you said that would be one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit to bring back to our mind the things that you have spoken. Father, I'm asking specifically that today we will be set free by the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit, free to fight, free to remember, free to win. We ask this in the glorious and powerful name of Jesus, the Son of the living God. Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess, and we are so glad to be a part of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I need to make a few statements when I'm talking about um, doorways for demons. When you preach a message like this, it's very easy to become very legalistic. It's easy to say, you do this, this will happen. You cross this line, that could happen. I want to say this, these doorways are not automatic. I'm not trying to imply that if you do A, B will always happen. I'm not trying to imply that if you fail in an area, you are now demonized and you are a victim of the enemy. It's not that simple. It's not that uh, uh, rigid. In fact, we are recipients of the incredible ministry of the Good Shepherd. And he keeps us from evil far more than we realize that he does. Years ago when Jack Deere was one of our guest speakers, he preached about doorways for demons and some of our list came from what he shared that day years ago. But someone in our congregation uh, that loved God with all their heart said, uh, said, Brother Jack, in, in my life I have violated all of these, but I've never felt that I was demonized. What does that mean? And he said, well, there are reasons that you may open a doorway for a demon and a demon doesn't come in. He said, sometimes it's just the sovereignty of God. Sometimes it's this, that, or the other. He said, I can't give you a Bible verse for it, but sometimes the devil just misses a good opportunity. He said, but I suspect something else was going on. He said, do you have, and he said, this is 
Um, I, I can't remember if he said parents or mother, but he said, do you have a praying mother? And he said, oh, I have a mother that prays like you wouldn't believe. And she intercedes for me. And he said, I think what the Holy Spirit is telling me is that you were protected because you had a praying mother. And loved ones, we need to stay with the notes is what we need to, to do here. Um, but I want to say the doorways are not automatic. We're simply saying that this can happen. And if you engage in this kind of activity, you are increasing the odds of that sort of thing happening. That's all we're trying to say. Um, we need you to understand that when we talk about opening a doorway to, for demons, we're not talking about demon possession uh, necessarily. I do believe in demon possession. I do not believe that Christians can be demon possessed um, because the idea of possession carries with it the idea of control and ownership and a very high level of submission to the enemy. You say, well, the Bible talks about demon possession. The Bible does talk about demon possession, but in most instances, and we don't have time to get into this, but in most instances, the word could just, it could very easily be translated the, the influence of a demon or demonization. In other words, not everybody that is under the influence of a demon has to be called possessed. Um, but I do believe, while I don't believe a true Christian is demon-possessed, I, I have known some Christians that have acted awfully much like it. And um, I do think they are under the influence of hell. And it's, it's not right when hell finds it easier to use a believer than heaven does. But I have known people like that, and you have too. And uh, I'm thankful I'm not looking at any this morning, but they, we, we've all known people like that. But we've also known people that are under an oppression. They are under pressure. They might even be under a bondage because they've opened the door to the enemy. And um, I've, I've told you my testimony of deliverance at James Robinson Bible Conference. I, I went to a conference seeking help, uh, basically going there being told that what I was looking for did not exist, that what I was experiencing did not exist. And the biggest challenge to me at that James Robinson Bible Conference was um, to, to let my theology embrace things I didn't understand. And God brought a great work of deliverance for me. The key I would say is this, as we go start going through this outline, the key is don't traffic in darkness. You don't want to traffic in darkness because this is something that I think is generally true. Anything you and I traffic in in darkness gives the enemy some level of permission to work in our lives. So don't traffic in darkness. You may have the wonderful, miraculous experience of having a praying mom that keeps you from harm. You know, when you read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul was writing to women, and of course it, it would apply to men as well, but he said to those of you who are believers, who are married to an unbelieving husband, or you have unbelieving children, he said, don't, don't cave in to their sin. 
Don't cave in to their unbelief. Don't cave into what's going on in their life. Listen to me. This is what Paul said. He says, because the unbelieving husband and the unbelieving children, can you believe this? Are sanctified by the believing wife and mother. Now, he was not saying they are saved. He was not saying that if he's an unbelieving man, if he dies, he's going to heaven. That's not what he was saying at all. But Paul was saying this, understand, as hellish as your situation may be, as desirous as you are to serve the Lord, and you want to do it with a godly man, you want to do it with your children, and they're not cooperating. He said, don't bail on them. He says, because there is something going on in the supernatural realm, this 1 Corinthians 7, that you may not understand. Your prayers to God, your prayers that are going up to Him, also wrap around those unbelieving family members. And they experience the grace, that's what sanctified means. They experience the grace, the mercy, the protection, the love of God that they would not experience otherwise. God does it because of your prayers and because of your life. So loved ones, we understand, what I'm trying to say is this, don't mistake an absence of problems as God's approval in your life. It may be that, but understand, if you think you're getting away with your sin, if you think you're trafficking in darkness and have no consequences, if you think you're living life the way you want to live and you say, well, I'll, you know, I'll just handle it myself and I'm doing okay, you're doing okay because of that praying person you're making miserable. You're probably doing okay because mama that may have gone by way of the grave long ago said, Lord, don't let any of my children die and go to hell. Grandma prayed it. Great grandma prayed it. I want to tell you, there is, there is something about prayer that is more powerful than essential oils and cosmetics. And I, I don't have any problem with either. I don't have any problem with either. But understand this. Understand this, the prayers of a righteous man, the prayers of a righteous woman reach far beyond time and space and circumstances and dimension. But what we need to understand is we thank God for the prayers. And you know, and you know, you know what I do when I'm going through the, the toughest place I can go through? I've learned to do this. When I'm going through a place that I just don't think I can go on any further, my prayer is always this, Lord, raise up people to pray for me raise up people to pray for me. I realize that may mean Roy loses sleep, but Roy, I'm worth it. I'm worth it. You know, I, I say, Lord, would you raise up people to pray for me? Because I know that when we pray for, for each other, some things happen when we pray that do not happen if we do not pray. So I say, Lord, raise up people to pray for me. And my advice to you loved ones is don't traffic in darkness. Because though God may be merciful, we're going to see in just a few moments that there are times when God lifts his hands, not even in judgment, but in correction, in chastisement. And we want to be sure that we don't give the devil a foothold. Now, you say, well, pastor, I've just been going through a, a tough time. I, I know. And you remember, that's what I said a few weeks ago. I think this is a particularly difficult time. Uh, I think around the world, but, it's, but in our country as well, I think, and, and I think a lot of times because of the blessing of the Lord, we've been sheltered and we've been covered and we haven't always realized what is going on sometimes in other places. 
But I think the Lord in his mercy has lifted his hand to help us see where we are and what we're struggling with. And it's the mercy of God, not the, not the wrath of God. I, I have said I think America's under judgment, and I still do. But we need to understand that when judgment comes, it doesn't just mean God has written us off. It means God brings in heavy correction. Heavy correction. You know how your parent used to say, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you? And you never believed it then? We don't believe it when God says it either, but it's really true. And I, I, I want you to understand that there are seasons, we know that, but I think there are times that we go through something that just doesn't seem to be ending. You say, well, if I could just have more faith. I don't know of anybody that walked in faith better. I don't know if it's quantitative. I don't know if I can say from reading the scripture that Paul had more faith, but I don't know of anybody that lived out their faith better than Paul. And this is what Paul was writing to the Corinthians. That's a long introduction. Just bear with me. Um, it's, this is important. Um, Paul was writing to the Corinthians and he was talking about his credentials as, a, as, a, as an apostle. And he said, he, he said several things, but one of the things he was talking about is he said, we can't, be, we can't misunderstand the issue of suffering in our lives. He said, we're going to understand. He said, in fact, Paul said that suffering is the mark of an apostle. Uh, it's not because if you suffer, you're better. It's not because God, you know, if you suffer, you've earned a higher standing. No, when people go through suffering, and loved ones, you're going to go through suffering. You're going to go through suffering. You say, oh, no, not me, Pastor. I'm 19 years old. I'm about to get married to the most handsome guy on planet Earth. I got the devil by the tail singing tie-yah, yippee-yah-yay. I'm on a downhill drag. Everything's going to be worse. I'll tell you what you're going to say within a few weeks or months. You're going to say, when I married him, I couldn't. This is what my mom said about my dad uh, when I was asking her about how do you know you're in love. She said, your feelings are important. But she said, you're going to have feelings that go up and down. I didn't believe that. I didn't believe that. And this is what she said. She said, I guess the best way to say it is put it like this. There are days I loved your daddy so much I could have just eaten him alive. And then she said, and there are other days that I wonder why didn't I? <laughs> so what Paul says, and, and I believe this is part of the fellowship of suffering. The fellowship of suffering, we, we mistake it. We think that virtue is in suffering. But when we read the life of Jesus and when he's commended for his suffering, he wasn't commended because he suffered. He was commended because he suffered and got through it. He suffered and said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's the fellowship of his suffering. You can't just say I'm suffering, so I must be like Jesus. Sometimes we're suffering because we're foolish or we're sinful. But when we go through suffering, whether it's natural suffering or whether it's the correction of the Lord, and we bow our head and say, Lord, be it unto me according to your word. 
Whenever we bow our head and say, Lord, if there's any other way I can do this, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's when you enter the fellowship of his suffering because you're suffering and you're saying, I will not be dissuaded from following God. That's the fellowship of suffering. Well, that's better than you think it is. Just let it sink in a little while. In, in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, now, don't turn to it because it's a long passage, and I don't want you to lose what I'm saying by reading it. You can go to it later. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 29, Paul makes a statement. Now, this is not what we're preaching about. This is to prove a point. So I'm going to make an observation after we see what Paul said. Paul made it clear. He said, my ministry, my daily load is to care for the churches and see that they are growing. He said, that's my primary role is to, is to care for the church. And he said, that's not an easy thing. He said, when, when is one of you sick that I don't share weakness with you? He said, when is you troubled that I'm not burdened with you by your trouble? He said in this passage, when one of you falls into sin, every time you get into sin, it's not just you. I am in distress. I can't sleep because of the carrying the distress uh, of your sin. Now, now, what Paul was saying is this. That's my world. And loved ones, you have your world. You have your burden. You have your whatever you want to call it. The, the cross that you have to carry. Paul said, mine is this because I'm an apostle, a pastor of all these churches. Yours may be totally different, but it's still something that you need to carry. And everybody would say, yeah, that's all right. He, you know, that's true. He said, but now let me tell you about my bonus points. And it sounds like Paul is bragging. He's not. In fact, he apologizes two or three times. He says, I know I'm speaking like a fool. I know I'm speaking like a man because I know this isn't the way score is kept in the kingdom. But let me tell you the way it looks in the flesh. I have this unrelenting pressure to care for the church. That's my cross. That's my daily ministry. He said, and let me tell you the bonus things that I've picked up along the way. He said, labor. He said, I'm speaking as a fool. I shouldn't talk like this. This is not the way heaven measures. But I think I work harder than anybody. Persecution, nobody's list of persecution is any longer than mine. 39 lashes. Now the sentence was 40 lashes. But it's amazing how the most mean-spirited people in the world seem to be surrounding themselves with Bible verses. So they knew the limit was 40 so, so that they wouldn't violate the law of God. They said, we're just going to beat the snot out of you. But to be sure we don't go over, we'll only beat you 39 times. He said, five times I've received 39 lashes. He said, I have been beaten with rods that were designed to cave in um, ribs uh, if, if it was a certain type of rod. And then the others were canes that were merciless. And far worse than the lash. He said, I've been under rods three times. 
Once I was stoned. If it's the episode we think he's talking about, it was on one of his early missionary journeys. He was stoned and left outside the city. They thought he was dead. And the Bible says that the disciples gathered around him and prayed. And the inference is, we're not sure, but the inference is they prayed and raised Paul from the dead. Either, either he was dead or everybody, expert stoners, thought he was dead. He said, I have been shipwrecked three times. He said, I was afloat in the deep a day and a night. He said, imprisonment, I can't tell you how many times. Journeys, one after the other. And it's not like our journeys. When we take our journeys, we call ahead, we get a hotel room, we get everything all set, and we call it vacation. But it wasn't a vacation in those days. He said, I've had to journey and left the security of a home, a clean place to stay. He said, and when I traveled, I was in perils of robbers. He said, there were times I was persecuted by hostile Jews. So I said, I'm getting away from the Jewish community only to be met by hostile Gentiles. He said, I went into the city and was beat within uh, an inch of my life by the mean gangs of the city. He said, so I went out in the country and found out the rednecks were just as mean as the city dwellers. He said, I got beat twice. And uh, or, uh, any place I went, not twice, I got beat any place that I went. And Paul said, now all of this, all of this is in addition, he said, added to my daily load of caring for the churches. Now I'm, I'm not here to be an advocate for pastors because everybody has your cross. Everybody has your burden. All of us do. And none of us have the right to say, man, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. But what I'm trying to say is that Paul thought it totally understandable that even though this is my realm and I'm going to labor here minding my own business, there are going to be seasons of shipwreck and seasons of arrest, seasons of journeys, seasons of peril, seasons of robbery. And loved ones, you and I, if we're going to enter this fellowship of his suffering, we need to understand that the sufferings often come without explanation. And, the, and many issues that the suffering brings up is only going to be explained on the other side. But what makes us worthy, what makes it possible for us to be like the disciples who were beaten in the book of Acts, and their response was that they were thankful, that they were counted worthy to be treated this way for his name. We have a tendency, we all do it. I know we do. I'm not fussing at you. We all have a tendency to say, this ain't right. No, it's not right. That's why it hurts. This person's wrong. This person's being used of the devil. This issue isn't right. Guys, nobody's disputing that. But you don't win Badges, you don't win medals, you don't earn stripes on your uniform by complaining about how much you're going through. You earn those things by being faithful unto death. You say, okay, Pastor, you're telling me to go home and just suffer. No, I'm telling you to go home and fight. But be sure that it's the time to fight. And be sure you know what you're fighting 
And be sure you know if this is something like the cup of Gethsemane where you receive it and just trust God to pull you through it or is it something where it's the work of the enemy and you resist him? That is the most unlearned, unrecognized, unpracticed skill in the Christian faith in regard to spiritual warfare. Discerning what the attack is, discerning who is responsible, and then knowing how to fight. That's what I think will be the last of the spiritual assault messages, I think. I mean, that's my plan. I don't have any plan on going any deeper with it. I mean, I'm not saying we'll never preach on this again. I'm just saying we got some words to deal with. Now, there's, there are some things you see in your outline. Here's number one. And I'm just going to touch on these because I want to end with an encounter. I want to end the service with an encounter. I want the Holy Spirit to touch you and these altars to be filled. I want the same spirit to do the same thing in Brown Chapel. I am trusting that whoever is watching online and whenever they watch online, the same encounter with the Holy Spirit will touch their lives. Here's the first thing I want us all to remember, my sweet loved ones. Here it is. The Christian life is lived out of our inner person, energized by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We must not fall into the trap. And it's the most natural, intuitive thing to do whenever we end up being attacked. It's natural to lean into our resource. It's natural to lean into our strength. It's natural to lean into everything except the Lord because nobody does me wrong. And loved ones, let me tell you, all of us get done wrong. Especially men, we say, nobody treats me that way. You get treated that way all the time. And then we keep telling folks, nobody treats me that way. There's always somebody bigger than you. There's always somebody with more money than you. There's always somebody with the power behind them that you don't have behind you. And loved ones, if we're not careful, we'll write checks with our mouth that our life is not able to fulfill. And we need to be sure that we don't fall into that trap by understanding that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So we need to realize that the Christian life will never be lived in your personality type. The, 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 the Christian life will never be lived out in your spiritual giftings. The, spirit, uh, the Christian life will never be lived out because of the resources or even the network that you've built. You know, sometimes our friends bail us out of our trouble, which is good. It's good to have friends and especially friends that can help you out. My, my brother used to say this. He said, when you're going into a gunfight, he says, first thing you do is invite all your friends who have guns. You know, I understand that I'm thankful for friends that have, that have various types of guns. I'm not talking about armed revolution, I'm talking about help. But sometimes God Almighty in his wisdom will put you in a place where you feel totally alone. Even if you know you're not alone, you feel alone. And sometimes God in your trial will pull you at a place where you are alone. 
Your friends will seemingly have abandoned you. And it's not that they've abandoned you. Oh, it happens sometimes. Some friends will abandon you. Some friends have, have permanently damaged friendship because they abandoned you when you needed them most. I know that. But usually what I've found is my friends have not abandoned me. God has preoccupied them with something else. God has got them fighting their own battle over here. And I thought they abandoned me. They haven't abandoned me. They're fighting their own battle. But God wanted to get me to a place where he takes me by the hand and he says, Stephen, it's me and you on this one. Well, Lord, I, see, we always want to, you know, Peter, this is the way your life is going to end. Well, Lord, what about John? John has nothing to do with this. I have a plan for John. I have a purpose for John. I have a work for John. But right now, this is about me and you. And he'll take you to that place. And it'll be very difficult. Number two, our goal is to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, John, James, and Peter all said the same thing using different uh, words. We are in a fight against the world. That means the old fallen system. We're not at war with people. But we're against an old fallen system that generates rebellion against God. We're at war against the flesh. This is my flesh. Now the Bible does not say that your body is evil. Through the history of Christendom, there have always been those that cut their flesh or, or, or hurt their flesh, tried to give themselves physical pain in order to exalt the body. But the Bible doesn't say your body is evil. But it does talk about the flesh, the fleshly nature and, you know, I've, I've told you before, the, the word for flesh, my flesh, is the word soma. It's my body. And this is not evil. It can do evil things, but it can do righteous things. But there's something that I have to fight, not my soma, but my sarks, the fleshly nature. And I've got to be on my best behavior with my thoughts and my actions and values because I'm at war with that old nature that has been put to death with Christ. And then of course, we're against the devil, spiritual beings that actively oppose the kingdom of God itself. Now we know the kingdom is coming in power, but we are against the enemy. We are against the devil. So we understand number one, that I have to live life in the power of the spirit. Number two, I am in a fight to overcome the world system the fleshly nature that works against God and devils and demons and evil that is all over the world. Now here's number three. Our battle is not, you do have all this, right? I, I redid the outline a couple of times. I wasn't sure of the finished product you got. Our battle is not with people, but with spiritual forces of wickedness. You say, no, pastor, you misunderstand. I know who my battle's with. I've got their return address on the envelope. I know who my, no, they are flesh and blood. Well, the enemy can use people. The enemy can use governments. The enemy can use all, anything he wants to use as long as God allows it. But what I'm trying to say is that at the heart of the matter, our battle is not with people. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, it says, deliver us, 
uh, give us this day our daily bread, you know, and uh, forgive our sins. Deliver us from evil. And the translation we use is deliver us from evil. But the Greek translation is a definite article, hoponeros, deliver us from the one who is evil. Deliver us from the one who is evil. And what that means, now I don't think I've ever been attacked directly by the devil. I don't think I am worthy of his attention. Not that, I don't think I deserve to be singled out by him is what I'm trying to say. I'm not that big a threat. Um, but I do know that every attack that I have, I, I do know that every spiritual battle I got comes from him. So that's why when we are taught to prayer, we're to say, deliver us from the evil one. Why do we translate it from evil? Because they understood contextually that it wasn't just we're saying protect us from Satan himself, but it's saying protect us from all of his emissaries, protect us from all of his attacks. Um, but it, and, and, it, and it may be people. This statement that I'm making does not mean that we have no people problems. We certainly do at times. At times we have problems with people, with flesh and blood, but our wrestling with it, our contention with it is not on the fleshly level. Paul said to the spiritual leaders of the church, he said, avoid Alexander the coppersmith. He has caused me nothing but trouble and he will do the same for you. He has done me much harm. May the Lord reward him according to his deeds. And that was really a powerful pronouncement. He realized that he had some trouble with Alexander and he said, I want everybody else to avoid Alexander. Herod was called a fox by Jesus. Jesus was saying, I know that Herod is only um, uh, a puppet in the hand of the real power, but he said, he's a fox, he's deceitful, he's, he's a, a trickster, and I'm going to keep obeying God regardless of what Herod says. Um, nobody, nobody did more to harm Jesus and the early church. No single person did more to harm Jesus and the early church, the book of Acts, than Caiaphas, the high priest of the Jewish faith, did more to harm the people of God than any other single individual that I'm aware of at least directly so. So we do know that we do have people problems. We do sometimes, but that does, and, and it does not mean that all our problems are therefore demonic, but it means that some of them may be. Uh, loved ones, uh, th there are some things that happen to us because we are in a broken world. What I mean by that is God didn't do it and it may not be a direct attack of the devil. We are in a world that's broken now, thankfully, the Lord is in control of even a broken world. There are some things that happen to us because of the direct intervention of God. He helps us. There are some things that happen to us because of an attack of the enemy. And we've, we've got to understand that, um, when, whenever, like for instance, whenever I'm sick, I always, the first thing I do whenever I'm a sick, I, sick, I approach it as something spiritual. Is this an attack from the devil? Is this that? Is this the other? Then I may say, no, I've not taken care of myself. I've not slept like I need to. I've not eaten like I need to. And it's not as easy as you think to discern sometimes what level trouble is on. Are you guys with me? Okay. Okay. Um, but let's spend a few minutes on these doorways for demons. 
I can't explain everything and I can't give the uh, qualifying statement. This is true, but you have to remember that I've, I've, I've taught you for over 28 years. I, you're going to have to remember some of it. Okay, I can't, I can't do it today. But uh, um, anger and unforgiveness is the first door that we do not want to walk through. Anger and unforgiveness. Paul said to the Ephesians uh, and, and to the church in general, that that's what the letter to Ephesus was, we think, was, a, was a, a letter to the churches of that area. In your anger, do not sin. Now, that encourages me a little bit because it says that there's room for anger that's not sinful. Now, I want to tell you, don't fall into the trap I have of calling your fleshly anger righteous anger. Because I know how it made me feel. There's nothing righteous about it. I know what it made me say. There was nothing righteous about it. There is righteous anger. Jesus typified that maybe three times in the scripture. And his anger was always directed when somebody was kept from approaching the father. It was never about his rights being violated or his uh, reputation being besmirched. In fact, I read through the Gospels recently just to see how Jesus handled personal criticism. He doesn't help us much. He just doesn't answer. No, I'm teasing. That helps us a lot. But what I'm saying is Jesus' anger was truly righteous anger. So we can have anger that's not in and of itself sin. But this is what he says. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. I believe what he's saying by that is deal with it. When it happens, don't sleep on it for two or three days because if you're not careful, your anger, you will, your subconscious will turn you more and more into a victim. He says, deal with it quickly. He says, and if you don't, if you don't deal with it quickly, what will happen? You will give the devil a foothold. You will give the devil a foothold. Now, it may not mean that you are in profound sin. It may even mean that the person you're upset with is the problem. But he said this, if you don't deal with it, if you let anger prevail, then you're going to wake up one day to see that you have given the devil a place to stand in your life and you don't want that to happen. He says to the Corinthians, again, Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, you have to deal with problems properly. He says, you've got to, you've got to forgive when it's time to forgive. You've got to discipline when it's time to discipline. And he says, why do we do that? This is uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 9 through 11, verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. He said, we know how he works. We, we, uh, he said, we know that the enemy twists everything. And he said, if you are insisting on everything being exactly the way you want it, if you're insisting on only your wisdom being the wisdom that is followed, he said, you've got to work things out in the church because if you don't, the devil will outwit you and you ought not to let that happen because you're aware of his schemes. Okay. So I've got to be aware of anger and unforgiveness. You say, but I was done wrong. I know. And the Bible gives us a way of dealing with those things when we're done wrong. Um, you know, and, 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 and forgiveness doesn't mean that you say, well, nothing ever happened. 
Um, I mean, there are people that I can forgive that I may never trust again. You, you know, uh, if, if, if someone uh, is, exhibits, exhibits provocative behavior toward your wife and flirts and makes a vile suggestion, um, I, I may forgive, but he's never being around my wife again. You know, you, you know what I'm saying? Forgiveness doesn't mean that you throw wisdom out the door. And forgiveness does not require you to be the only one that gives. But forgiveness requires that we take the biggest step. And that's a tough thing to do sometimes because we don't want to give the devil, uh, we don't want to let him outwit us. Here's number two, sexual sin, perversion, and uncontrolled lust. Now, loved ones, let me say this. I do need to give this qualifier about this. I know that we are sexual creatures. And the younger we are as adults, usually the more battles and struggles that we fight. But that doesn't mean they go away. They, the intensity can change. The, the, the situation can change. The nature of them can change. I'm not talking about temptation. You know, Paul gave Timothy a good example of how to flee youthful lust. He's, or how to win over youthful lust. Run. Run. Joseph is our poster child. Run. We, you'll never be spiritually mature enough to handle temptation in the strength of the flesh. Agreed? Okay. Okay. So that's, we're not talking about temptation. I'm not saying that when you are tempted, you've opened the door to the devil. Every middle school kid, every high school kid has to learn how to possess those sexual drives and those thoughts. And that's part of growing up uh, to learn how to handle temptation. And we've got to learn how to handle temptation. But when we give in and we say, I'm going to live the way I want to live, you are opening the door for the enemy. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now you say, well, you have sexual immorality everywhere. But he says, this is of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. He says, this is off limits even in the world. And he said, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now that's a very gracious interpretation, a man sleeping with his father's wife. The, the interpretation, we don't know if it should be his stepmom or his mother. It's not clear in the text. Either way, it is forbidden. And he said, and you are proud. Now they didn't say, oh, what a good boy sleeping with his mama. They didn't say, oh, we're so proud of him, you know, for what he's doing. That's not what the word proud meant. He said, you have found this unoffensive. You have in the name in our culture, in the name of tolerance, You've said, well, everything's fine, you know, as long as it's between consenting adults. And we, we just, we just want to talk about the love of Jesus, not the judgment of Jesus. He said, you have become so proud and so arrogant. You have replaced your estimation of what's right and wrong with God's estimation of what's right and wrong. He said, rather, you should have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. Now, Paul said, I'm the founder of the church. I'm not physically present, 
but I'm with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one doing this. He says, this is what I want the church leaders to do. Now, let me say this. Do not do this tonight in small groups. This is not for anyone except the highest level of the church. And it is so layered and so complicated. And in our culture, such a legal thing. Just let this be one of the wonders of the ancient world. Don't, I know a church that did this um, in, a, in a small group, turned someone over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And loved ones, I want to tell you, it was not good. It opened the door for something profoundly evil. You say, well, tell us about it. Not till everyone involved is dead. Not till everyone involved is dead will I ever tell that story. But I want to tell you, this is what Paul said. I mean, this is serious. This is serious. He said, I hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. You know what Paul was saying? Now, again, it doesn't fit the theology of a modern church. And, and even if we accept it, we don't know how to, how to process it in this culture. He said, in this type of sin, you live in the presence of evil. And I am going to turn him over to Satan. In other words, I'm saying, God, I lift your hand. Remember Paul had already told the Corinthians in, the, in 1 Corinthians? He says, your prayers cover the sins of, uh, of, of your family members in, in, in the way, in, to the effect that it gives them mercy. He said, I'm asking God to lift his mercy. I'm not going to stand in the gap for this man anymore. I'm going to let him live in the world he wants to live in. And loved ones, I'll tell you what frightens the pea turkey out of me is the number of people that claim to be Christians that persist in their sin and have no intention of repenting and have become arrogant in their sin. They don't understand that the mercy of God is not the approval of God. He said, I'm going to let him live in the world he wants to live in. He said, it may cost him his life. But my prayer is that as he's dying, he will turn to the Lord and call out for mercy. You say, well, what are we going to do about that? I tell you what we need to do is understand how serious the church of the Lord Jesus needs to take sin. We need to understand how serious you need to take sin. We need to understand how serious I, the pastor of the church, need to take sin in my life. It's turned into a circus of what can we get by with. But the Bible says when we begin to dabble in, in sexual sin and unbridled lust, we are asking permission to walk in a world that is absolutely hellish and demonic. Here's number three, hatred and violence. Violence is on the rise in our culture right now. Watched a clip of a couple of college teams in Texas playing. Guy hit a go-ahead home run off a pitcher as he's rounding third. The pitcher runs and tackles him, starts trying to beat the daylights out of him. And, and there, was, there was a time that that would have been unthinkable. Now we're in a culture that uh, hatred and violence. In Luke chapter 9, my two of my favorite disciples, James and John, 
are with Jesus. They're going through Samaria. The Samaritans don't want to receive Jesus. Now, I don't like Jesus telling on them. They're my favorites. I don't like this story. But they think the Samaritans, they already hated the Samaritans. If you saw this episode in The Chosen, I think they handled it pretty well there. And they say, uh, they're not paying attention to you, Lord. Let us, like Elijah, call down fire from heaven. And this will be pleasing to you and build a kingdom. And I would have thought that Jesus, knowing they were good guys, would have said, boys, boys, let me, let me tell you a better way to handle this. There's some legal steps we can take, or there's this, that, and the other, or there, you know, we can what, 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 what. You know what Jesus said? He turned and he didn't correct them. He rebuked them. That's the word that was used when he rebuked the demonic storm. That's the word that was used, the same word when he rebuked the Pharisees that had made it nearly impossible for people to get to God. They have now moved from, you need a little guidance, to what in the world are you thinking? Do you know what Jesus said? He didn't say, you've been hurt by the Samaritans and you need to go to anger management and work through this. This is what he said. You don't know what spirit you're operating in. Calling down fire from heaven to destroy people? You don't know what spirit you just opened your heart to. And then we talk glibly at the coffee table or in the parking lot or over the phone or in our post on email as though we sit as judge jury and executioner of people. And Jesus said, you don't know what you have just opened into your life. Here's number four. See if this one's less offensive. Okay, what have we said? We, there's anger and unforgiveness, stay away from it. Sexual sin, perversion, uncontrollable lust, stay away from it. Hatred and violence, stay away from it. And guys, I'm, I, I, th this is not preaching the word. This is meddling. This is pure meddling. I'm just telling you the way it's working in me. I, I grew up, you know, liking boxing. You know, it was the day of Ali and, and uh, Ernie Terrell and Sonny Liston and Joe Frazier and, and uh, George Foreman. I just grew up loving boxing. I thought it was a sport. And... Um, I haven't watched boxing in years, but I sat down to watch uh, the, the MMA uh, event with someone, and, um, and I watched that for a few minutes, and I, I want to tell you something. I made a decision. I don't know if it was from the Lord. I don't know if it's from the flesh, but I, I decided that day, I'm not going to make sport of people pummeling each other and drawing blood and breaking bones. And I'm, I'm not saying you're going to hell if you, just, if you watch MMA. I'm, I don't mean that at all. I'm just saying this. We should not be nearly as comfortable with violence as we have become in this society. It, we're reflecting Romans in the Colosseum. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, Pastor, I've got, I need you to shut up. I got tickets to the event in Charlotte. I've got to get going. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said that. But I'm just, I'm saying this, 
uh, even our television shows, the, the, the kinds of movies we watch. I've come under conviction. I don't want to glorify violence and hatred anymore. I'm not a pacifist. I think there's a time to fight. I think somebody, best thing they need, you know, more, more than they need handouts, butt whooping. I understand that. There's a, there's a time for action. But I think we have just defaulted to that and we've glorified it. And we don't understand what we open ourselves to. You might say, well, I'd never punch anybody. Yeah, but would you eviscerate them with your tongue? Would you cut them off with your gossip? No, I'm going to leave violence for another culture. I'm going to leave violence for another time. Because the one I know said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Again, I'm not anti-gun. I'm not, I don't think that we ought to be stripped of weaponry or anything like that. But I think we need the wisdom to understand the difference between self-defense and gratuitous violence. Well, that was excellent. Let's go to, to number four. Envy, jealousy, and narcissism. That is inappropriate self-focus. He says, don't, har James says, don't harbor bitterness in your heart selfish ambition in your heart. Don't hold to it. Why? In verse 15, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. He says to walk in envy and jealousy and self-focus. He says, not only is it not heavenly, that would be bad enough to say it's not heavenly, but he goes on and says, it's not only not heavenly, it's earthly. It's of this system. It's of this system. He says, and not only is it of this system, he says it is fueled by unspiritual principles and motivation. And then he said, just to be sure you understand, it is demonic. It is demonic. And loved ones, Paul, when he was writing to the church about the four characteristics of spirituality, he defined spirituality by saying what spirituality is not. And four things he called unspiritual. He said, this is always unspiritual. Uh, the first was those that are not growing in the knowledge of the Lord through his word. Uh, the third was those that could not be corrected by the church leadership in regard to spiritual gifts or anything else. That was in 1 Corinthians 14. The third, uh, the, the uh, yeah, the, the third one was those that were judgmental of others that had fallen. He wrote that to the Galatians. He said, you that uh, are spiritual, when you see someone overtaken in a fault, in a spirit of humility, restore them. But you want to know what the second, the second thing he called unspiritual? He says it was people in the church that thrive on envy, jealousy, and gossip. He says that is a hallmark of unspirituality. And James says, it's not just not heavenly, it is demonic. Well, let me tell you the way this works and we're going to go on because I can tell we're all getting nervous and hungry. First Samuel 18, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. Now the, the girls, when they came in from the battle, they were singing, you know, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And it was a beautiful song trying to celebrate the victory of the army. But Paul said, why, or Saul said, why are they only giving me credit for killing thousands? But they're giving David credit for killing tens of thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? 
And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now, if Saul was a good leader, Saul should have said, in praising David, they're praising me. Saul should have said, they are saying that Saul had enough sense to hire David. And Saul's choice of staff is furthering the kingdom. I want to tell you, whether it's a pastor or whether it's a, a, a military leader or whether it's a, a business owner, you find somebody that's got to have all the credit for themselves. You found somebody that you don't want to be around. And what, what ought to happen is that a person who is a leader, a person who's number one in an organization, ought to surround himself with other men and women that he can celebrate. But it isn't the way it was with Saul. It wasn't the way with Saul. What more can he get but the kingdom? From that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. Now, this is always a tough wording in the Old Testament when it says an evil spirit from the Lord. And I've explained it. I'm not trying to just find an easy way out. But basically, the idea of cause and effect in the Hebrew mind, when it says an evil spirit from the Lord... There wasn't an evil spirit that touched Paul because God's hand was on him. Saul, I meant to say, not Paul. God's hand was on him. So when it says it was an evil spirit from God and other like hardening Pharaoh's heart, the idea is that God withdrew his hand. Not that God traffics in evil, but that God withdrew his hand. So because of this uh, envy and jealousy in David's heart, an evil spirit that was allowed by God came forcefully on Saul. Now, let me tell you something. Evil spirits don't just come upon people that are cussing and drinking beer and watching dirty movies. He was prophesying in his house. Remember, one of the great mysteries of Saul's kingdom is that he would begin to prophesy with the prophets. It was a thing of astonishment. So he was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did, and Saul had a spear in his hand, he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. Isn't that a great way to end a prophetic utterance? <laughs> but David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David. Why was Saul afraid of David? Because the Lord was with David, but had departed from him. Loved ones, Anger and forgiveness will open the door to the devil. Sexual sin will open the door to the devil. Hatred, and, and let me say this about sexual sin because I know we're in such a sex-satiated society. Sex is used to sell everything from toothpaste to automobiles. And, and it, 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 is, it is the dominant thing in our society. And I, I'm not trying to excuse sexual sin. I just want to be sure you understand there's a difference between temptation and a wicked lifestyle. There's a difference between a moment of weakness and a, and a life of wickedness. And I know any way I say that, it sounds like we're, excusing, we're not excusing. But I'm, I'm, I want you to understand, don't take lightly that battle that you're in every day. Hatred and violence will open the door to the enemy. Envy, jealousy, narcissism, that means extreme self-interest, will open the door to the enemy. And here's a fifth one that, oh man, we got to hurry. You got to hurry. Occult practices. Now, in our culture, we don't think in terms of occult practices. We don't carve idols. We don't have an idol shop where we go and buy something and bring it into our home. But um, what we learn in the New Testament when Paul was dealing about food offered to idols, 
He said, not every idol is something that you see with your eyes. There are attitudes. Uh, there are practices. There are associations. Uh, the Lord said in Leviticus 19, do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, uh, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. See, in today's culture, I've read two or three articles about why we don't go to, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Psychics, yeah. I thought I heard, I thought I heard rabbits. I thought I heard, <laughs> yeah, psychics, yeah, mediums. You know, the, the, and, and, I, and I, I read a couple of sermons while we don't go. And what it was, was just basically, it's a waste of your money. This is a sin of bad stewardship to go. If they worked, why don't they win the lottery? You know, and it was all of that. And, and I tell you what grieved my heart, the writers of those sermons, I know they meant well, and they're, they're men and women of God, all of them that I read. But they're saying, this is, this is about wasting your money. But we've lost sight of the fact that the occult, defiles you. There's a spiritual defilement. God didn't say, don't go to the mediums because it'll just be a waste of your money. God said, don't go to the mediums because you will be defiled by them. He said in Deuteronomy 18, he said, I am driving out these lands, uh, or, or the, I'm sorry, these nations out of the land that I'm giving you. And loved ones, it wasn't that God was being unfair. I'm going to kick you out and bring Israel in. We know, I've talked about this, we know that for at least 400 years and probably several hundred years more, God was doing everything he, he could to draw the nations of the land to himself. He was going to tell Abraham that his children are going into the land that he had been promised, but they're going to be in Egypt for 400 years. Why were they in Egypt for 400 years? Not because of anything they had done. Hear me. He said, because the cup of iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. You know what God was saying? He was saying, I am giving the nations of the land, every one of them, a chance to repent. And there's one nation left. There's one nation left that has not crossed the point of no return. It's the Amorites. And I can't drive them out until Amorites, the Amorites make up their mind. And God was so fair and God was so just to the inhabitants of the land that he made his chosen people wait 400 years in Egypt until God could be sure that there was no chance for repentance in the land. He said, this is what you must, when you go into the land, don't learn what they learned. Don't imitate the detestable way of the nations there. Let no one be found among you. This wasn't about wasting money. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. Child sacrifice. That should not even be mentioned in the culture of the people of God. <coughs> one who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells. Pastor Corey, can I get uh, some water, please? <coughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord will drive out these nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord. That's why Samuel told Saul, 
that disobedience and rebellion, it was the same as witchcraft. It was, it, it's because it opens the door to demonic activity. Let's go to number six. Idolatry or greed. He says, and he, this is part of a much bigger discussion where he's talking about, we know that food is okay if it's sanctified by the word of God and prayer, but understand that this is a layered thing. And what he wanted them to understand, he says, when it comes to this food matter, you've got to answer all the questions. He said, because the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul was going to make a case that it was okay to eat food offered to idols if it was blessed and sanctified. But he said, if you don't handle it right, the occult level is so layered and so heavy that you can actually partake with demons. Revelation 9, Revelation, or 1 Timothy 6 talks about how greed is idolatry and is demonic. And then Paul calls greed, actually calls it idolatry itself in Colossians 6. Let's, let's hurry. Here's number seven, blasphemy. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by, by recalling them, you may fight the battle well holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have suffered shipwreck in regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Blasphemy in Paul's mind was not saying a dirty word. Blasphemy in, what, in, Paul's, name, in Paul's mind was not naming the name of another God. Now, all of those things could be considered blasphemous in the Old Testament. But this is what Paul said. He said, when you do away with faith and a good conscience, when you turn your back on truth and you turn your back on the conscience that God gave you, you are committing blasphemy. It's not cultivating an open mind. It's not cultivating a spirit of tolerance. It's blasphemy. Number five, understand, oh, and I, I do need to mention this. Many scholars, because of Revelation 9 and Revelation 18 and um, uh, the word usage pharmakia, we get pharmacy from it. I'm not opposed to medicine. I'm not opposed to you taking medicine for the, uh, the, the help you need. We, we are not one of those churches that, that thinks, uh, you know, doctors are good for those who don't have Jesus. No, doctors are good, you know. Um, we, we're not opposed to medicine. But many scholars believe on the basis of Revelation 9, Revelation 18, that whenever drugs are used as hallucinogens to alter your state of being, to create some kind of experience, not to treat a sickness, that that may be what the um, uh, word witchcraft refers to in those two passages of Revelation. And if so, I'm, I'm not saying this is an ironclad case, but it appears that drugs that are used to alter the state of consciousness or used as hallucinogens, in other words, to just get high. Now, I know, I know that you can get high on some drugs that, are, that serve a purpose and you have to regulate them. I understand that. But it may be that when you open the door to that kind of activity, you're opening the door to the devil. Um, understanding the battle, give me 60 seconds to cover these and we'll wrap this up. 
You cannot cast out the flesh. Don't go through a line and say, I want to be set free when it's your flesh. You, we can't cast out the flesh. We can, but it involves killing you. Okay, we can't cast out the flesh. And I want to tell you something else. You cannot disciple a demon. You cannot control demonic activity. A victim's mindset ensures continued domination. An arrogant mindset ensures a fall. A careless mindset ensures absolutely nothing. The only choice we have is to be sober, vigilant, and very serious about reigning in life as Christ intended. And the, the last thing before I give you this thing about rebuking the enemy is it's not enough to experience victory. We must live in victory. You see, sometimes we go to the point that we can get some relief and then we go right back to the old life. Jesus laid down a principle in Matthew 12 and we don't know how literal he was being or if he was just using the imagery of a house. Jesus said when the unclean spirit's gone out of a man, it's like a house being cleaned out, swept, clean from top to bottom, but the problem is the house is empty. And when the enemy comes back to try to reassert himself, he finds the house totally habitable. And loved ones, I, I want to tell you this, we need to, we, I believe in deliverance. I believe in being set free by the power of God. We believe in healing. We believe in all of those things. But we are not shamans who give you relief or peddle relief for you to go back to your old life and invite the enemy back in. Under rebuking the enemy, we, we need to do another teaching, but I won't do number four. We'll, we'll, we'll do, we, we've got several R formulas, and we keep forgetting how we word them. So that's why if you've seen these R's, they may look a little different. We forget the exact recipe, but the principles are all there. We need to recognize, that means agree with God if we're going to rebuke the enemy. We need to say about our sin what God says. We need to repent. That means we apologize and we turn away. We need to renounce. That means we not only apologize, but we declare war. We're not only saying, you aren't going to be part of my life anymore. I'm not just walking away from you. I am at war with you. That's renouncing. We need to reject or rebuke, make no room for the flesh, and then we need to resist. We need to fight the good fight of faith. Now, let, let me tell you this. Okay, I'm through preaching. Now I'm pastoring. <sighs> The enemy, I believe this is the, the word of the Lord for us today. The enemy has exerted great effort to make these struggles we're in appear to be all about his outpouring. The enemy wants us to think that we are being overwhelmed by him. But we are beginning to understand and will soon see clearly that this is not about the enemy's outpouring. This is about father's outpouring. We're about to see that as we cleanse our heart and cleanse our life and enter a new day of cooperation, that, that we're going to see that when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of God will raise up a standard against him. Loved ones, so many are ready to just give up, declare truce, I'll give up some of my territory. You know, I'll give up some things if the devil will just back off. Loved ones, this is not about his outpouring. He has almost exhausted his arsenal. This is about the Lord's outpouring. Can I tell you, I'm just, I'm being very, very candid, very vulnerable. 
this past week, I, I've been going through a time, a, a season. It, 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 it's not about you. So don't say, oh, what have I done? What has the church done to pastor? No, 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 it's, it, it's not you. But I have been going through the most severe attack that I have felt in decades. I mean, literally decades. It's just one thing upon another, upon another, upon another, upon another, upon another, upon another. And I'm not exaggerating. It's, it, it would have to, this is a Stephen King novel of things. And I said, Lord, I need you to speak to me. The psalmist said, say to my soul, you are my salvation. Lord, I need you to say to my soul, you're my salvation. And for a couple of days, I kept saying, Lord, speak to me. Lord, speak to me. Lord, speak to me. More than a couple of days, for several days. I was saying, Lord, speak to me. Help me. Help me hear your voice. I'm not hearing your voice. I know your word. I'm in the word. I'm praying. But Lord, I need you to speak to me. Lord, this is, I can't survive this. And then I was thinking of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. You know, he said, you won't suffer any temptation that you're not able to bear, but trials, difficulties, a lot of those are terminal. He said, we despaired of life itself. And I said, Lord, I, I, I despair of life itself. I need you to help me. I need you to speak to me. And then the Lord said, go to your prayer room. I'm going to speak to you. And I am ready. I am ready. I, I, I pull out my journal. Then I thought, well, maybe I need a tape recorder because this, this glorious revelation will come so fast I can't write it down. And I just began to, to wait in his presence for a little while. I had, then it was like the whole world grew silent and I felt God begin to speak to me. And this is what he said. I need you to repent of your fear, of your worry, of your anxiety. Now, this was on top of not only the middle of the storm, but the worst day of the storm. I dropped to my knees and I said, Lord, I'm not sure what I need to repent of. And I thought, well, what he told me to repent of is a good place to start. This is out of my journal. I'm not going to read everything because some of it is very, very personal and wouldn't help you anyway. This is what I wrote in my journal as I wept. I said, Lord God, oh, Lord God. I repent of my fear, my worry, my anxiety. I have feared those who bring pain only in this life and have not considered the power of the one who is Lord over life and death in this life and the next. I said, you alone, O Lord, are powerful. You alone are my shield and my fortress. And you got to understand, this wasn't me confessing some great sin. This was God bringing me to the table saying, all I've heard out of you for the last few weeks, couple of weeks is fear, worry, and anxiety. You alone, O oh Lord, are powerful. You alone are my shield and my fortress. You, Lord, are the mighty God. You are the rock of safety I run to when my heart is overwhelmed. You and you alone. Help me stand against evil, injustice, and may I be able to thank you that by your grace, such evil and injustice has no home in my heart or in my thinking. I give thanks to you in all of these circumstances. You have never failed us. You have never left us alone. You've never left us on our own either. You do not allow me to be put to shame. You never have and you never will. May you delight in us, Lord, as you teach our hands to do battle. 
By you we will run through every enemy troop and will leap over every obstacle wall. <coughs> you alone, O oh Lord, give us the victory. No weapon formed against us will be successful. May we not regard iniquity of any sort in our lives. May our lives bring pleasure to you. Come, Holy Spirit, clothe me in your power. Holy Spirit, wear me as a garment. Wear me as a glove. <coughs> bring a mighty victory to your people. Honor your name in this house. And may the legacy we receive bring glory to God alone. And there are other things that would be far more telling, but they are just too personal. Loved ones, I want to tell you, the issue is not that God needs to get our circumstances changed. The issue is that we need to repent of forgetting who God is and forgetting what He has done and forgetting what He has promised. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The problem is not God getting you out of the storm. The problem is God getting the storm out of you. And that's what he's after right now. You say, well, did the storm leave? No. No, no it didn't leave. But I tell you what, I'm going through the storm and I'm not going to be focused on my worry, my anxiety, and my doubt. I find myself just reciting, Lord, I remember when this happened and this is what you did. Lord, I remember when this happened and I remember what you did. Lord, I remember when this raised its hand against us and I remember what you did. Loved ones, that's the path out of this. I want you to go with me. Your battle may not be the same as mine. Your battle may be totally different. But I can tell you what, your testimony is the same. He's never failed you. He's never left you on your own. He's never left you alone. And it's more than just a positive statement. Greater is the one who is in me than he that is in the world. No weapon that is being craftily formed against me will succeed in any way. You see, it doesn't even matter if I win or lose. But what matters is I'm in his arms. Would you stand with me, please? Okay, time to quit. I've reached the outer limits. If you are watching online and you need prayer, you don't know Jesus or you need healing or whatever you need, call the number that comes on your screen. We'd love to pray with you. Over in Brown Chapel, here in the sanctuary, the ministry teams are coming forward. They're going to be here to pray for you. Loved ones, the victory belongs to the Lord. We say, summon your power, O God. Summon your power, O God. Show forth your strength as you have done, as you have done before. We want to pray for you. And if we don't have enough prayer teams, wait till they're through praying for somebody, then move in or they'll come to you. Others of you may not even need to be prayed for, but you just want to take a step and say, I'm not leaving or living in this place anymore. Lord, I want you to change the circumstance, but I'm through with my worry. I'm through with my anxiety. I'm through with my fear. <coughs> Jesus said, don't fear those who can destroy the body. And I think he would also say, don't fear circumstances. 
and trials that can destroy the body but do nothing else but rather fear the one who has power over this life and the next. Loved ones, I don't, I'm not going to make room for fear of the what ifs anymore. And every time you say, what if you mess up and slip? Then I'll get up and go the other direction again. You are on the brink of a phenomenal new era in your life. You are on the brink of a breakthrough like you have never seen in your life because we are saying we are through with taking our report from the liar. We are through with taking our report from the enemy.